0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today in our continuing study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 6, verse 8. Once again, as you get your Bibles, the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 8. The sign in the window read, Boy Wanted. John Simmons was a young boy, and though he was very lazy by nature, he saw his opportunity, and so he applied for the job. And he was quickly hired by an elderly Mr. Peters. And the pace was really leisurely, and so he really enjoyed the job. Well, toward the middle of the afternoon, he was sent up into the attic, a dingy place of cobwebs, and it was infested with mice. And Mr. Peters said, You will find a long, long, deep box there. He said, I want you to to sort out all of the contents and see what should be saved. Just go through everything and see what needs to be saved, what needs to be thrown out. Well, John was very disappointed. It was a large container, and there seemed to be nothing in it but junk. That's all he could see. After a few minutes, he went back down to the ground floor. Mr. Peters said, have you completed your job? He said, well, no. He said, "Uh, you know, it's dark up there and not only that, you don't have any heat going up there and, and I didn't think it was worth doing. I looked at it and it's just all a bunch of junk. Well, at closing time, this young boy was paid and was told not to come back. The next morning, the old sign, Boy Wanted, appeared in the window again. This time, Crawford Hill was applying for the job and he was employed. Now, when he was asked to go up to the attic and tidy up this same box, He spent hours and hours and hours separating the usable nails and the usable screws from the things that were to be thrown away. Well, he was up there for a long time. Suddenly, he raced down the stairs, really excited, and he said, at the very bottom, I found this, and he was holding up a $20 bill. Well, at last, the store owner had discovered a conscientious boy to whom he could entrust his business when he passed on. Well, years later, Mr. Peters said this, He said, This young man, who is now my successor, found his fortune in a box of junk. Then correcting himself, he added, No, he actually found it in his mother's Bible because he heeded the verse that she made him memorize, Luke 16.10. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in that which is much. Now in Matthew 25 and verse 23, Jesus said this, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things, I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. If we desire to be used by the Lord, we must be faithful in the things that he gives us to do, even if they are very small things. The scripture tells us not to despise the days of small things, Zechariah 4:10. Yet many people find themselves reluctant to do the seemingly unimportant and insignificant tasks. Desirous of something more, desirous of something grander, they feel as though it's beneath them to involve themselves in something which they consider to be menial. An admirer once asked the famous orchestra conductor Leonard Bernstein what was the most difficult instrument to play. He responded very quickly, and this is what he said, I quote, Second fiddle. I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm or second French horn or second flute, now that's a real problem. And yet if no one plays second, we have no harmony. Unfortunately, many believers, those who love the Lord, given their hearts to the Lord, feel as though it's beneath them to involve themselves in doing things that are menial, but the way of the Lord is that we first prove ourselves in the smaller things, and as we are faithful in them, then he will give us greater things to do. The reward of faithfulness in service is greater service. Jesus came on the scene and he said something very radical in Matthew 10:39. He said, happiness is found in losing your life, in giving yourself away. Happiness is found in serving, not in being served, not in always getting, but in giving. And today, listen, if you're feeling down and if you are feeling blue, maybe it's because you're not engaging yourself in serving others. When you feel like throwing in the towel, take up the towel instead and wash somebody's feet, and you will be the one who is refreshed. The way of the Lord is that we first prove ourselves in the little things being faithful in the little things, and as we are faithful in the little things, then he will give us greater things to do. A man by the name of Stephen modeled this beautifully. In Acts 6, in verse 1, it says this, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now this is not talking about different nationalities, but about two different Types of Jews. The Hellenists were those who were born outside of Israel. They had Greek names and they spoke the Greek language. The Hebrews were the Jews that were born in Israel. They spoke Aramaic and Hebrew. Verse 2 says Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said to them, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, when it says multitude, that means that there were a lot of people there. At this point, there were somewhere between fifteen and 30,000 people now that had given their hearts to the Lord and were disciples of Christ. So many people and so few apostles. It's kind of like what Moses faced in the wilderness when he had 2.5 million people. When people wanted to talk to Moses, they had to actually stand in line all day just to talk to him. Sometimes there were too many people and they could never see him. And in Exodus 18, verses 17 and 18, it says this. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear themselves out. For this is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. And then his father-in-law suggested that Moses appoint some additional leaders to help spread out the load. And that's exactly what he did. And the ministry then began to, to expand. Now the word serve in verse two is the word in the Greek is diakoneo. And we get the word deacon from this, which simply means servant. That's what it means. It means servant. And though some have tried to make deacon a kind of a title for someone special in the church, it's really just another term for servant. Now, here at Calvary, we don't use the quote-unquote title as an official title, but the deacons of our church are found everywhere. They're found in the Sunday school classrooms. They're found running the sound system. They're ushering. They're working in the tape ministry. They're working in the overhead projector ministry, the parking lot ministry, the helps ministry, serving in the church setup ministry, and doing any one of a number of servants' jobs. That's what a deacon does. He serves. That's what the word means. During World War II, England needed to increase its production of coal. And Winston Churchill called together labor leaders to enlist their support. At the end of his presentation, he asked them to picture in their minds a parade which he knew would be held in Piccadilly Circus at the end of the war. First, he said, and I quote, he said, first would come the sailors who had kept the vital sea lanes open. Then would come the soldiers who had come home from Dunkirk and then gone to defeat Rommel in Africa. Then would come the pilots who had driven the Luftwaffe from the sky. Last of all, he said, would come a long line of sweat-stained, suit-streaked men in miners' camps. Someone would cry from the crowd, And where were you during the critical days of our struggle? And from 10,000 throats would come the answer, We were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. Not all jobs in the church are glorious. Not all of them are prominent. But I want to tell you that more often than not, the people with their faces to the coal, those are the ones who really make the church run. Those are the ones that make it happen. Those are the ones that help the church accomplish its mission that God has given to the church. Well, verse 3 says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, interestingly, the word ministry here is the same word, diakonia, just a different form of the exact same word. So, just as the deacons will be serving in the food ministry, the apostles will be serving in the teaching ministry. Now, this doesn't mean that the apostles are somehow above those who were serving the food. It just means that they were now going to focus on what they were called to do—the ministry that God had given to them. And notice that the apostles lay out the two main components to spiritual leadership, and that is prayer and the ministry of the word. And I am convinced that these apply to us, whether it's being the pastor of a church or teaching a Sunday school class or just being a good parent in raising your children in the ways of the Lord. I can't tell you how many sermons I have heard in my lifetime on prayer. And the importance of prayer. And I'm sure that all of you, if you've been to church very much, you've heard sermons about the same thing. But how important it is for any who are in any place of ministry, which really includes all of us, because the word ministry here, diakonia, means to serve one another. So this has to do with every one of us. How important it is that we pray. You know, we never think in terms of it being a sin when we are not praying for others, but it is. Listen to what the Bible says. 1 Samuel 12.23 Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. There's a man by the name of Alan Redpath. He was a famous minister and biblical scholar in England at the beginning of this century. He just passed away a few years ago. He said this, and I quote, If you are going to be a preacher or a teacher of the word, The wind and the fire from God are what you must have. You can afford to be ten times less clever if only you are ten times more spiritual. On that judgment day, there will be multitudes of people whom I will meet for the first time who will say to me, you faithless preacher, you covered up your indifference to us by many texts and sermons, but you did not really care because you did not really pray. And then he said, oh, how this has kept me awake many nights do you pray for your children do you pray for your family do you pray for your friends do you pray for your church do you pray for your pastor he needs it verse 4 but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word now don't let the enemy tell you that you already know all there is to know about God's word Those who have known the Lord the longest and have been seriously studying the Word for years, they're the ones who begin to realize that they're only scratching the surface of the richness and the beauty and the depths of the Word of God. There is a philosophy that says, just think about one biblical thought a day. You can't really take in much more than that. Listen, that's like saying that you can only digest one kind of food each day. It's nonsense. Verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Now, no doubt they chose these seven men because they were already working in this kind of a ministry. They were already serving the widows. And so now they are promoting them to oversight of the ministry. Verse 6. Whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith." Instead of the church growing, hitting a plateau, and then leveling off, it just keeps growing as the workload is spread around. So we see that Stephen began by serving tables, helping feed widows not necessarily a glorious position, not an exalted kind of ministry. But because he was faithful, he was then elected to the office of deacon, one of seven men chosen by the early church as being a man full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, and full of good works. You see, ministry always starts with serving. I mean, just think of Joshua, the great conqueror. He was the one who conquered the Promised Land. He's the one who gave it to Israel. But do you know how he started out? Numbers 11.28 says that he started out as a servant to Moses. Ministry always starts with serving. Well, now verse 8, where we left off last time, it says this about Stephen. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Now follow the progression. He went from a table server to a deacon to a miracle worker because he was faithful at each step. Now, the name Stephen is very meaningful. It's just a beautiful name. His name is in the Greek is Stephanos, which means a crown or a garland. The word refers to the reward that was given to a civic leader of the state and to the crown of glory that was received by one who ran and won the Olympic Greek Games. It is meaningful that this man with the name Stephanos should be the first Christian martyr and therefore the first to receive the martyr's crown. It's interesting what a long record of his death and martyrdom is presented to us in the end of this chapter in all of chapter 7. And next to the life of our Lord, this is the longest account of any death in the Bible. Now I'm sure that Stephen's mother and father didn't know when, when he was born and when they gave him this name that he would become a disciple of the one who wore a crown of thorns. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Now, notice that the word faith is used two times in the New King James Version to describe Stephen. Now, the footnote in the biblical text of this translation alerts us to the fact that faith in verse 8 was actually grace in the old original Greek text. In verse 5, we are told that he was a man full of faith. And the Holy Spirit. Here in verse 8 we are told that he was a man full of grace and power. See the grace of the Lord had produced an identifiable grace, a charisma about Stephen. This distinguishes the unique way that he manifested the Holy Spirit and the way the unique way that the Holy Spirit was manifest through him. Now Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that he had the same power to do signs and wonders and miracles as Peter and the other apostles. But he was also a person especially radiant with grace and an impelling and infectious graciousness about his witness. Stephen was full of grace and power. The word power there, by the way, is the word that we get dynamite from. It's dunamis, same word that Jesus used in Acts 1.8. When he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. A person like Stephen, crowned with faith and grace and power, becomes a magnet to other people, but he also becomes a moving target for the opposition, and now the opposition begins to come like a hurricane force. In verse 9 it begins, Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. There were in the city of Jerusalem a number of synagogues that had been formed by Greek-speaking Jews from various parts of the world. A synagogue was kind of like a local church. It took 10 Jewish men in a city to be able to form one. And to these synagogues, Stephen went and he preached in Greek, giving his testimony of his faith in Jesus Christ. And Luke mentions four of them. They were made up of what were called the freedmen. Now that sounds as if it would be something almost Christian in emphasis, but these were not spiritually freedmen, they were free physically. These synagogues were founded by Jews who had been slaves in the Roman Empire and who had now been set free. There were two groups from Africa, the synagogues of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians. The Cyrenians were from the city of Cyrene and that was located in the northern part of Africa near modern Libya. The Alexandrians, they were from the city of Alexandria. That was in Egypt on the Mediterranean Sea. Also, there were two from what we presently call Asia Minor, or Turkey, Cilicia and Asia, two of the Roman provinces of that day. Now, it was a custom in the synagogues in Jerusalem to have debates. I mean, you could just stand up and debate any time you wanted to, and they would debate uh, religious issues. Stephen went in there to tell the good news of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, crucified Savior, risen Lord, and that caused more than the pleasant exchange of ideas. But his listeners found that this grace-filled Stephen, they found that he was very difficult to resist. Verse 10 says, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Stephen was a Hellenist. That is, he was a Greek-speaking Jew. Not only that, he was a new type of preacher. You see, the apostles were Galileans. They were fishermen, and they were uneducated men. In the fourth chapter, Peter and John were called ignorant and unlearned men as they appeared before the Sanhedrin. But Stephen was from an altogether different world. He is a man of reputation and culture. He was foreign-born and spoke Greek. Beginning with him, the whole spectrum of the Christian faith took on a different color. It took on a different hue. Beginning with Stephen, the gospel message of Christ was thrust into the cultural, political, social, economic, and academic life of the world, just as it is today. Stephen possessed tremendous conviction. I mean, he just had such a wonderful conviction. It was deeper than the earth beneath and as high as the heaven above. I mean, he was a man of vast commitment and persuasion. How different that is from the society in which we live today. In our day, the agnostic and cynic are the men who are admired and exalted in the academic world. They do not believe anything. The man who is accepted for the most part in the academic community today is to be eclectically broad-minded. To him, life is without purpose, it's without plan, and it is without meaning. He stands as an existentialist, looking at the whole creation of God and recognizing no part of it as God having anything to do with it. Stephen stood as an emissary of the Lord, preaching the truth of the Almighty. And all truth is dogmatic. If Christianity is any one thing above anything else, it is dogmatic. In poetry and in fiction we can be fanciful, but in mathematics we have to be actual, and real and truthful. Mathematics is an exact science, and so is the truth of the Christian faith. Christianity is not a speculation. It is a revelation. The Christian faith is not a puzzle or an enigma. It is an oracle of Almighty God, and it is of all things dogmatic. It has great propositional truth. And when Stephen spoke the truth, verse 10 says they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now, notice the exact words here. In verse 9, it says they were disputing with Stephen. They were able to resist and argue with him. But in verse 10, it says they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They could stand against Stephen, but they could not stand against the Holy Spirit, who was in him and speaking through him. The Holy Spirit was supplying the answers, the thoughts, and the words to say, and he will do exactly the same thing for you when you stand and speak the truth in Jesus. I have an old pair of gardening gloves, and I put them on sometimes when I want to protect my hands when I'm doing something around the house. Now, if you know how much of a mechanical genius I am, you'll understand that it's a good idea for me to put on gloves when I do anything. Well, when you look at those gloves, you know, they're really pretty useless. They can't do anything, at least and not until my hand is in them. Without my hand, I can stand there and I can command them to do anything I want to. I can command them to do the yard work or to do the chores all day, but they won't do a single thing. Yet when my hands fill the gloves... They can do everything I do because I'm the one doing the work. Do you get it? You are the glove. The Holy Spirit is the hand. Let him fill the entire glove and then see what God can do and will do in you. Now, it's interesting that one of these synagogues was made up of men from Cilicia because the capital of Cilicia was Tarsus, Undoubtedly, in the synagogue was a young man named Saul of Tarsus, who was among those who disputed with Stephen when he came preaching Jesus Christ. Which means that Saul also was among those of whom it is said here in verse 10, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Here's this brilliant young Jew, Saul of Tarsus, later to become the Apostle Paul, who was as a Jew tremendously stirred by the things that he heard Stephen say about Jesus Christ. He arose and he disputed, but he could not answer Stephen. And that must have been a real gall to Saul, a blow to his pride, that he could not answer him from the scriptures, since Saul prided himself as an authority on the scriptures because he had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the great teacher. Well. When these men could not answer Stephen, they resorted to tactics often employed by people bested in an argument. When you cannot argue someone, usually you try to outshout them. And then when you can't silence them, then you try other tactics. And that's what they're going to do here. In verse 11, it says, Then they secretly induced men. The word induced there, the Greek word, hoopabalo, means that they suborned men. In other words, they bribed men to say what they were going to say. So the verse really reads, Then they secretly bribed men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now it's interesting that they put Moses first here, making him more important than God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him. Now it's interesting. It says that they stirred up the scribes. These men were the ones who were the experts in the scripture And these were the ones who were usually Pharisees. Whereas Peter and John's last trial in chapter 4, Gamaliel, a Pharisee, stood up to defend them. This time the Pharisees are against Stephen, the Christian. Interesting word where it says they stirred up. That's the same word we get the word volcano for. They really shook these people up. And interestingly, this was the first time that the people themselves were aroused against the disciples. And so that they came upon him, they seized him, and the word seized there means violence. And the picture is they just grabbed him. They seized him with violence and they literally dragged him into the court because it says, and they brought him to the council. That is the council that that is the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel. Verse 13, they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place. That is the speaking of the temple. Now the Jews had always taught that God dwelt in a temple. The temple was the very center of his presence. Stephen was preaching that God dwelt in the hearts and the lives of people, you see, not just in the temple. The hearts of God's people were now the very special place where God's presence dwelt. Now God does fill the temple in the sense that he fills the whole earth with his presence. But you see now, Jesus Christ has made it possible for God to fill the hearts of men and women with the presence of his Spirit, and his presence is permanent. You see, the believer's body, when he accepts Jesus Christ, his body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6:19, the Apostle Paul would later say, "'Do you not know that your body "'is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, "'whom you have from God, and you are not your own.'" We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way.